everyone. We are back here for episode nine of the Beyond the Whistle podcast. I'm Dylan Pescatore. I'm here with my guys, Ian Nicholas and Cortland Parrott. Last week, we had a special guest in Chris Shern from the Yes Network who covers the Yankees. Now we're going across the country now to Alex Faust, the LA Kings play-by-play announcer. Alex, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. So it's always great to have special guests come in. You know, Ian and I are really into the play-by-play announcing and trying to get into the business that you are excelling in now. Cortland, more of a behind-the-scenes guy, but we're all TV-oriented, and we just want to know how you're doing during these times where really nothing much is going on. Surprisingly busy, actually. Uh, obviously, not a lot going on in terms of live games, but uh, I think like anybody else in, in the sports industry, we're trying to engage with our fans. We're trying to uh, you know, stay relevant in a time where there's no live event programming to go on. So we've got a call set up with a couple of prospects that we recently signed, uh, introducing them to the LA media on Zoom instead of a press conference. Uh, we've got some uh, video game uh, initiatives that we've been working on over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and then, you know, we're airing classic games on Fox Sports West. So kind of taping some introductions and some programming uh, bracketing those. So we're, we're staying busy, strangely, in, in this time. But otherwise, you know, just like you staying at home and trying to follow the local guidelines uh, and uh, ultimately staying safe. It's For sure. Well, you want to ask our first question today. Yeah, it's interesting to see uh, your career and how you guys are changing. But how did you start? Uh, how did you start getting into broadcasting? It was actually in high school. Uh, I was, you know, well before eSports was a mainstream thing. Um, I was involved in uh, simulated racing, what, what they now refer to as iRacing. Um, and I did, you know, commentary on, on some of those events. You know, nothing major. And, and I've always wanted to be in broadcasting and didn't have many outlets in high school uh, going to a New York City public school. It's not like we had outlets to do much in the way of broadcasting work. Uh, but that happened to be one of them that was available. Um, my parents both worked in the industry, so that kind of exposed me as an early uh, as a as a kid to uh, uh, the broadcasting world, but I really got into it in college, and especially after getting a chance to work with our student radio station at Northeastern University, a uh, chance to dive right in and uh, work the board or call games or be a, a studio host or do reporting work or or write. Uh, you know, it, I had so many opportunities there to to get involved. And that really got my start, I guess, in a fully-fledged way in broadcasting. That's very interesting because all the time we hear as young broadcasters, you know, take any opportunity you can get. And I know you do a ton of different sports. And it's interesting that you started in a simulation, a simulation with video games. That's awesome to see how you got your start. You just took that opportunity and you ran with it. So as you mentioned at Northeastern, you were able to hone your skills and you did a lot of great things there. You won the Jim Nance Award from STAA. And then also you became one of the youngest broadcasters ever to call, ever to call a basketball game uh, for the NCAA tournament. So tell us about the opportunities you had at, uh, up in Massachusetts at Northeastern and why you took your talents there uh, from New York to uh, Massachusetts. Well, it, it was one of those situations, I don't know if, you know, taking talents anywhere. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't even know at the time what I wanted to do with my life, let alone, uh, you know, wondering whether broadcasting would be a career uh, I actually I've really enjoyed my time at Northeastern, uh, not just because I had a chance to to call hockey games there, but um, I, I had a really well-rounded education. Uh, I studied economics and political science. I, I didn't do a traditional broadcasting communications uh, major, 
uh, I felt it was more of a passion project, really. I, I was interested in it because I enjoyed it. I loved it. I wanted to, to just do it rather than you know sit in the classroom uh, for it. Maybe I would have been better off if I, I took some of those classes, but you never know. <laughs> I got a great, uh, great education and a great job out of college. I, I, I worked uh, at Northeastern. I don't know if you're familiar with their uh, program, their five-year co-op program, but uh, I got exposure in a variety of different industries and actually intended upon graduation to not work in broadcasting. I, I wanted to get out and have a real job uh, that would pay the rent comfortably and uh, I was able to, to kind of get lucky enough and, and get into an organization that allowed me to pursue broadcasting on the side and continue it as a passion project. Uh, but I loved Boston. I loved the history there. And even as a native New Yorker, I get asked all the time, why do you enjoy Boston? Uh, because it's, it's a very different environment than New York. Uh, and I think the bottom line is if you live there for any amount of time and you can A, get through the brutal winters there and B, understand the history and, and kind of get immersed in the culture. Um, it's a it's a really fun place to be and it has its own quirks like anywhere else, but I love it. We know that you spent four years at an accounting firm, which you said let them, uh, you go into broadcasting on the side. Mm -hmm. But I heard and I actually read an article that your dad, who also worked in the industry, wasn't too fond of you going into the industry yourself. <laughs> you talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, he, uh, well, I, it was my freshman year in college and I, he was, I was, I was just kicking around ideas. What did I want to study? And I said, communications. He said, are you sure you want to do that in a very stern way? And I said, oh, I guess maybe not. I don't know. So uh, I didn't wind up doing that. I, obviously things worked out in the end, but uh, I think when you work in any field, you, you get jaded after a little while. And, and I think like anything else, you know, you, after maybe 30 odd years, let's say down the road of, of working in professional sports, you're going to get jaded by certain things. But uh, I would hope that, you know, the, the passion that I have for my line of work uh, won't diminish over time. That's cool to see how, how much passionate and although your parents were in it, they didn't really want and you still persevered. And going back to your childhood, what was, did you follow sports? Were you a big sports guy? What sports did you follow? Well, I, I was a big baseball fan growing up. I actually didn't watch a ton of hockey growing up. Um, you know, at the time, the Devils were the, the most successful team in the New York area. And I didn't have any connection in New Jersey, so I didn't really care for that. The Rangers were terrible. The Islanders were terrible. Uh, and I didn't go to any hockey games growing up. Uh, so I, I had envisioned myself being a baseball broadcaster. And, and actually, my first gig in, in professional broadcasting was with a minor league baseball team. It was with the Staten Island Yankees. Mm -hmm. um, it was fortunate. I actually got two jobs within 48 hours. I got my job at Pricewaterhouse, which wasn't supposed to start until the following September. And I got gig with the Staten Island Yankees for that summer. So I was able to do a full season uh, of home games with the Staten Island Yankees living at home in New York and uh, not worrying about when my full-time job would start until the fall. So it, it was a perfect uh, confluence of, of events that uh, gave me a taste of what it would be like to work for a team without having to fully dive in. So as you mentioned, even though you haven't worked in the business for too long, you've really worked everywhere. I mean, NBCSN, Nesson up in uh, the area we are in now, Westwood One, and then obviously now you're calling games for the Kings out in LA. And I know you had some big shoes to fill in that play-by-play -play role, but tell us a little bit about your color commentator 
Jim Fox, because I know he's a legend for the Kings. And tell us maybe how he made your transition easier to the booth and how he's been as your partner so far in your run. Oh, my gosh. I, I think that was what helped get me the job, really, was our chemistry at the audition. Um, he's been – he and his wife both have been incredible. Uh, and I owe them a great deal. Me and my wife both owe them so much. Uh, we actually just saw them yesterday. We did a socially yeah. distant visit with them just yesterday in their driveway. Awesome. Um he was one of the first people to kind of welcome me into LA I, that summer when I didn't know anybody out here. I didn't really have anything. I just had an apartment on my own. My, my wife, uh, my future wife at the time hadn't moved out here uh, just yet. So he and his wife, Jim and his, his wife, Susie invited me over for dinner. I don't know how many times that summer and introduced me to their friends and really made me feel welcome and at home and that was such a huge help in the transition between living in Connecticut um, and kind of being a freelancer full time and having my own uh, established network of friends uh, in New York and Boston and starting fresh, essentially, in L.A. in a, you know, in the National Hockey League. It's an intimidating thing, but he made me feel so much at home. And I think one thing we pride ourselves on is. The chemistry that we show on air is it's natural. It's not contrived. We, we enjoy spending time with one another. We enjoy each other's company. We enjoy poking fun at one another all the time. Uh, and I don't think you could ask for anything more in a partner who you have to spend, you know, six plus months with. I probably see yeah. him during the season more than I see my wife. <laughs> That's funny to hear. You know, Ian and I were always searching uh, to be a better college commentator to the other. And it's great to hear that you have a great relationship with Jim. Let's go to the man that you did replace, Bob Miller, who retired after 44 years. Is there anything you picked up on what he did or maybe some other announcers that you heard? Well, you try to borrow from, you know, a variety of different guys and take the best of what you hear or learn from different perspectives within the industry. I think one thing that I've appreciated from Bob uh, and how he called games over the years was he started in radio back in the 1970s. And for many years, the Kings were simulcast on TV and radio. So the folks here in LA are used to a very specific style of calling games. When I came in, I, I said right away, I'm going to be doing it in a very different way. Um, not because I didn't like how Bob called games, just I have my own style, right? And the, and the Kings hired me for my own style. But even over the last year or so, watching more and more classic games, and, and especially during this pause, watching a lot of classic Kings games, I've picked up on why folks uh, loved his style so much around L.A. It was clear. It was incisive. It was, in many ways, no frills, right? It just, get, it just got you the nuts and bolts, whatever you needed. Um, and there wasn't a ton of uh, you know, peripheral storytelling. It was a different era back then. But Bob's advice to me, even though he called games in a very distinct way and the audience here in L.A. loved it, was you have to be yourself because people aren't going to uh, respect you and you're not going to have credibility with the audience unless you're yourself on the air. So I, I haven't really deviated too much. I've made tweaks over the years just listening to other guys call games in the league, just picking up on best practices. But bottom line, I've tried to be myself the whole time uh, that I'm on the air. If, if you're not, you get found out pretty quick. That's a good message to share with some young announcers as Ian and Dylan are trying to find their way, find their little niche that they have. Uh, one question I was very interested in is, 
is there's not many places in uh, professional sports for announcers. There's many announcers who stay there for 40, like Vin Sully, and we were just talking about Bob Miller. When did you feel like you had a place in the broadcasting industry? Was there a point in your career where you got a certain job or did something that you said, okay, this is a sustainable future for me? Well, it was really right around the time I quit my day job, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, I was still working nights and weekends uh, in sports along with my day job at PwC. And right around the time where I quit, uh, it was in the fall of 2016, uh, maybe a little bit before then. I, I forget the exact timeline, but um it was right then where I said, you know what, I've got enough income that I can try to make this work. And I wasn't exactly, you know, you know, making a great living doing it, but it was enough work between handful of games at ESPN, a handful of games at Fox, handful of games at Ness, and it was st stitching together freelance work that I felt I could make it. But getting hired for this job was the ultimate validation, because I think at any level, until you reach the you know, highest possible point you can in the sport you're still striving and even today i'm still striving even today i'm uh, you know i'd love to call a stanley cup final for a network probably not gonna you know be a uh, a thing i could achieve for another 20 years yet but it's something that i'm going to constantly strive to get better at my craft so that i can achieve that goal um, and i don't think any broadcaster is truly satisfied at any point in their career they're always trying to strive to get better and those who don't you quickly will find out who they are uh, things will get stale um, those who constantly hone their craft and work on improvement are the ones who continue to rise up the ladder in this industry that's really important i think for dylan and i to hear you can never be complacent in this industry and you always no. have to find you know, self-critique and have to get better so i know you call a lot of games and a lot of different sports so I know preparation, obviously, for a game is big. And Dylan and I, we try to prepare our best in high school. But what is the preparation process for you? Have your, has your dad given you any tips since he was in the industry? How does it vary from sport to sport? What is that like? Is, are you like computer guy if you prep, papers, folders? Are you old school, new school? What is it like for your preparation for the average game? I would say I'm very much new school when it comes to how I organize my notes. Uh, I've got, I mean, these computer printouts in size seven point font wow. uh, that I put together. But I mean, I, my dad was uh, not really in front of the camera. So I, I kind of had to go it on my own, which was great. You know, I, I had to learn, I had to fail. I had to make mistakes. I had to find ways to improve. Um, I had to overcome fear and fear of failure. I think if you talk to anyone in a performance-based industry, no one's going to be completely comfortable uh, in their own skin until they've had a lot of time and repetitions at a certain thing. And, and even my first couple of years with the Kings, yeah, it was validation that people believe in me, but you're still going out there every night and you have to deliver, you have to perform. And if you make a mistake, you have to own it uh, and you, you have to overcome it. You have to learn from it. You can't make that mistake again. And it's a terrifying feeling when you, even when you're in at that level, and something doesn't go right for you you don't you know identify a player correctly or you you slip up and, and you you know, stumble on a word or two um you know you, you have to get over that really fast otherwise it will consume you yeah for sure i mean i'm getting uh nervous for every game whether it be a team that's one in ten coming into the the rink versus a five and 15 and two team or really anything i mean every game i really get those butterflies in the stomach 
Now I want to bring up another big game that you called the series between Shark, the Sharks and Vegas last year. Was that game seven the most just crazy, improbable game you've ever called? Well, I wish I had actually called it. Uh, I, I, I called games <laughs> one through game six of that series. No, the no worries. It was, actually, overtime. it was actually a, a funny scenario because um, I was working with Mike Johnson on games one through six. And we knew actually going into game six that we would not be calling game seven. Usually the network, once uh, you know series had been whittled down, they try to bring in the higher profile announcing team. And Gord Miller and, and Ray Ferraro were scheduled to work game seven. We knew that we were off the series in game six. So in some ways, we were kind of rooting internally for the Sharks to end it there and, and have it be done. But um, even so, we got a double overtime thriller in game six that led into that wild game seven. Um, you know, it, the way that this business works is kind of funny. I had an opportunity almost to call game seven on radio, but another series went seven games and a different announced team was in place there. And they picked that game instead of the Sharks and Knights. You know, I wonder how they feel now. Maybe they should have picked the other <laughs> game. Uh, but, like, you know, you can't let those opportunities eat away at you too much. And I got a, a phone call from, from Gord Miller right after uh, game six ended, saying, you know, basically – saying, you know, do not worry whatsoever about this decision. It's happened to me too. He was so gracious. And that's the way it works in this business. You know, sometimes you get picked for things, sometimes you don't. Um, I, I've talked to uh, guys who work the NCAA tournament for CBS and they don't know year to year sometimes whether they're working it. Uh, it just, okay, we're, we're bringing you back or sorry, you know, you're not there anymore. It's a, it's a cutthroat business. And, uh, you know, you have to be at peace with whatever decision is made uh, because ultimately if, you earn your way, and if you're good enough to be in that position, well, then maybe they'll hire you for it next year, or maybe they'll bring you aboard for something else next year. And it, it that does not bother me whatsoever that uh, that I didn't call that game. But it was a phenomenal series, uh, and I was so privileged to just even just be working a playoff series for the network, uh, and especially one that had as much intrigue as that. I mean, that may have been the most entertaining series of the entire uh, playoffs from start to finish. Uh, and I, that rivalry has persisted even to this day. Uh, something that I've had a question about, um, what is the scheduling like? Do you know the games at the beginning of the season? Do you know every game and who's calling what, or is it more like a week-to-week -week thing? How is that planning done? Depends on the network. Uh, ESPN College Football, for instance, is a six-day call time, so they'll find out you know, basically one week before they're doing the game what they're doing. Uh, with the NBA and the NHL, it's done a couple months in advance. That way you can plan travel. And especially with an 82-game schedule, we have to have travel that works around our games. Uh, I can't miss a game with the Kings to do a game with the network. So I have to work around that. Um, but yeah, it's usually done about a month or two in advance. And also, when I was looking through some of the things about you over the past few weeks, one thing that I found really interesting two years ago in the summer of 2018, and now you're out in L.A., obviously, you know, the stars of the world are all there, and one of them being Alex Trebek. He said he wanted you, to, when he retired, the legend. I remember one time I was on a tour in Europe, and he was the voice of a bus tour for a museum. I mean, a <laughs> legend he is. And he's such a great uh, work on Jeopardy. He said he wanted you, because he's a big L.A. Kings fan, and I bet there's a lot of celebrity fans of the Kings, to be the next uh, host of Jeopardy. Now, I know, you know you're in Kings mode now, and you're doing everything you can, but would you have any interest, maybe not just in Jeopardy, but in branching out in something that's not sports-related in the future? Well, I think 
if you close doors and opportunities in general without uh, vetting them or seeing them through, it's it's a foolish way to go about your career. So mm-hmm. you know, I don't I don't like closing doors on any opportunity. I'll put it that way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, going back to playoffs, and you said how amazing that series was between the Sharks and the Knights, and now you're calling games for a uh, Kings team that's kind of rebuilding, just getting back to their winning ways that they had in 2012 and 2014. When you're calling, let's say, a game 78 for the Kings versus a Stanley Cup playoff game, do you have any different sort of preparation? Do you somehow get more hyped up for the playoffs? I mean, I would if I were you, but in your opinion. I think it's natural uh, to do that. And it's preparation in a different way for a national game versus a team telecast is different anyway, you know, because we're telling stories that align more closely to what our fans would be interested in in LA. Uh, I think the bottom line is, well, I'll even go back to last year in the playoffs because I I rewatched that series for the first time (laughs) because they were re-airing it. And I, you know, I learned so much doing that series about, kind of uh, living in the moment and, and, you know, kind of letting things come to you. And I, I realized that, you know, you can call a game in a similar way in the postseason. And I wound up doing that uh, to what I had in the regular season. You don't have to force it because the, the excitement level is brought to you by the fans and by the action on the ice. And granted, there are going to be big moments that you have to be ready for and you have to step up in the big moment and, and be ready for it. But I, you know, I'd be, I think I'd be foolish to say that you, you change your approach entirely. I think from a storytelling perspective, you have to keep in mind who the audience is. Uh, and for game 78 of the, the Kings season, when they're out of the playoffs, okay, we, we know that that audience has a certain understanding of where the team's been. And if you're tuning in for game 78, then you know a lot of the stories. We probably don't need to rehash those. If you're tuning in for Game Four Stanley Cup playoffs, uh, first round series, we might have to introduce you to, you know, some of the storylines from these teams going on. So it, it just depends on the game, and you have to know your audience. That is very interesting to see how you know each game has a different mindset, especially for the announcing side. Um, how do you stay motivated in that like middle section of the season where maybe the team isn't doing that well and the fans aren't up? How do you keep the energy up throughout the same throughout the season? One game at a time, because when you're tuning in for that game, it's still an event. And I mean, we're still you know, privileged to be in this great league. Uh, I look at it as if you're tuning in for that game, you're rooting for the team to win that game. And it doesn't matter what they did the 70 odd games prior. Granted, if you're in a playoff race, your your mind gravitates towards that. But all that matters is that game in front of you. That's it. So at the beginning, you mentioned how you're still staying extremely busy during this time, which is great to hear. And you also mentioned your roots to announcing video games. And looking at your Twitter, uh, you were very excited that you will be hosting the NHL's Player Gaming Challenge starting next week. Because I know Madden's already done that and NBA 2K's done that for the NBA. Uh, do you know what's going to go down with that yet? How that's going to work with, uh, as it starts next week? And what should the NHL fans be looking for uh, with this challenge? Yeah, the NHL has put together some fun matchups with guys who are either former teammates or, you know, in the case of the first matchup, we've got the Kachuk brothers going head to head. Um, realistically, it's not going to be a knockout tournament like 2K or, or Madden. Uh, this is just a, a kind of a round robin of, of putting together matchups between different teams and crafting a few storylines. If it goes further, we'll see. Uh, but for now, we're going to have uh, 16 matchups. 
And more than anything else, I think it's just a way to see guys in, in their homes and see how they chirp one another while playing games. Cause I know that's, that's part of it. When you're, yeah. when you're sitting next to your buddy on the couch, uh, you guys are going to be trash talking the entire uh, game. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing guys who were former college teammates, but now play on different teams in the NHL and, and seeing how they interact. It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, and it's a good way too to, to, interact with fans and, and give them something new and interesting to look at a window into these players' personalities. And we're raising money for charity as well uh, with funds benefiting the uh, CDC's COVID-19 foundation. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. That's an amazing thing. And I know I'll be tuning in for that. I mean, I'm looking for any type of content to get these days. You talked about personalities between players and teams. Let's say like a Chuck Dowdy rivalry earlier this season and throughout the multiple seasons. And, you know, as a fan of the NHL, and I'm a Devils fan, you brought up the Devils' uh, success earlier in the 90s. I was happy you did that. But um, I feel like the NHL really needs to market a little bit more like, a, like an NBA or an NFL. Do you feel like they need to as well? You know, they have all these great personalities. You have a Ryan Reeves. You have so many different players that are willing to bring out their emotion, but it's just not there yet. I think we're getting there. And I think for a long time, and understandably so, the NHL is a team sport. So when you're in one of those dressing rooms, you know that you can't put yourself in front of the team. And I think players have been wary for a long time of making that mistake of putting themselves in front of their teammates. But this pandemic in some ways has allowed guys to open up and see that it's not detrimental to your team to show a little bit of yourself. When it comes to playing the game and when it comes to focusing in on your team activity, you absolutely put the team first. But uh, in some ways, it's been a good window into guys' personalities when they're at home and they let their guard down a bit. I think one of the great things about this uh, period that we're going through is guys realize that, you know what, there is more to life than just hockey. And we're starting to see a little bit of that come through. I think the NHL has been very careful in not trying to push guys into areas that they're not comfortable with. I, I still think Sidney Crosby doesn't have a social media account. Uh, or if he has one, it's, it's you know, kind of a corporate, you know, just pushing out uh, pictures. But uh, even so, I don't think you can force that as a league because it has to be organic. It has to be something the players want to be doing. I think of the NBA in many ways, it's been organic. The league has picked up on things players have been doing and it's become fodder for talk shows over the years, but it was completely organic. It was started by the players. I think in the NHL, you're starting to see this, this generation, this current generation of players are far more interested in um, showing a little bit of their personality on social media than other generations of players may have been. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting to see how you can work closely with the players. You watch them all the time. What is your favorite player to watch on the ice? <laughs> mm. That's a good question. Um, you know, it's hard not to appreciate the guys at the top of their game. You know, Connor McDavid, until you see him in person, you really – it's hard to have an appreciation for his speed and skill until you see it. I think Alex Sovechkin is a guy, you know – Everybody knows what he's going to do. Everybody knows that he's either going to score from his office in that left circle or he's going to be at the front of the net, um, and yet nobody can stop it, right? It's, it's a thing of beauty, really. So I, I enjoy that, and I enjoy getting to see 
these players develop and grow. And, and we're at a great time with the Kings right now where uh, we've got younger guys that are just starting their professional careers and they're being molded by the coaches and the development staff within the organization. And I can't wait to see where they're at in the four or five years. And lastly, to touch on your relationship with especially the Kings players, because I know I've heard a lot of the NFL play-by-play guys talk about how they go into meetings with the players during the week and with coaches during the week. What's your favorite part um, pre-game, that process building up to the game? Of Do you get to meet with players and have one-on-ones with them or coaches? What's, that, what's your relationship like with the guys and who are maybe the funnier guys or the more interesting guys on the team that give you uh, good tidbits or facts for, uh, for game day? You know, I think uh, I enjoy meeting with the coaches. They're going to be a little bit more open uh, than the players sometimes, although it depends on the coach. I know Randy Carlisle would not give you a thing. Anytime that we would go down to Anaheim and try to have a conversation, he was very, very guarded. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, like, uh, I like chatting with coaches because um, they can give you a window into uh, what they're thinking about with regard to player development. And we do get one-on-ones with the guys. I, I think where it – helps us is to frame uh, something that may have been a personal story that we're going to tell on the air, or, you know, let's say they score a spectacular goal of walking us through the emotions uh, of scoring uh, that goal or um, how they think during a play and how they work it to a teammate, you know, what, what's, what are some of the bulletin board items that they're dealing with in the room? Uh, and then just, you know, having that bit of trust, I think is so important. Uh, you know, I, I try not to stick my neck out there in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've heard that it's better to be seen and not heard a lot of times. And yeah. I, I stick by that because your job is not to be friends with players. Your job is to cover them. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an employee of the team. I am in many ways a colleague of these guys, but, um, you know, in no way am I a peer in that way. For sure. Thank you so much for joining us. We have so much information to go through. And I know Ian and I are really going to pick up on all the advice that you gave us today. Alex, thank you for joining us. It's been Dylan Pescatore, Ian Nicholas, Portland Parrot. This has been episode nine of Beyond the Whistle.